The True Crime Beyond Bad podcast may contain material that is of a violent and graphic nature. This podcast may not be suitable for some people. You have been warned. Hello everyone and welcome to the True Crime Beyond Bad podcast. My name is Rob and I am your host. I hope you all had a great Christmas and a new year and ate too much and drank too much like I did. At the moment I'm updating my website. I wasn't happy with the work that I had someone do and uh, I thought as usual might as well do it myself. So it's not finished but all the episodes are there to listen to and to download. Come have a look listen to an episode and leave a comment. Good, bad, it doesn't matter. I've also started an Instagram page, which you can uh, come and join me at instagram.com, true crime beyond bad, all one word. You can also join me at Facebook and Twitter. I will put a link in the show notes to all of those things. So anyway, part three of who killed Jaden Lesky. Um, We'll go further into the investigation, the discovery of Jaden's body and the trial. Uh, these tragic events took place in the rural town of Maui in the Latrobe Valley, approximately 130 kilometres or 80 miles east of Melbourne, Australia in 1997. Jaden was just 13 months old. In this podcast, I'm using the resources and citations from a book called The Jaden Lesky Murder by Michael Gleeson and published by HarperCollins Publishers Australia. Now, this is a fabulous book. I've been reading it all the way through, and I recommend it for a very informative read about the case. I will post links in the show notes to where you can buy the book. I'm also using some resources and pages from ABC News Australia, uh, the Courier Mail, plus there's a bit of Wikipedia. So, uh, sit back. Grab yourself your favourite beverage, relax, this is True Crime Beyond Bad. When we last left off, Brett Lesky had just come back from WA and Greg and his lawyer Paul Vale arrived at the Maui police station. The search for Jaden had intensified. 50 police and volunteers were combing the paddocks and bushland in the area around Greg's house. Police forensics were searching and examining Greg's house for clues. In the rubbish bin outside Greg's house, forensics found a plastic bag containing five tissues. The tissues contained Jaden's blood, or so they believed. Subsequent tests proved them right. They noticed that some of the tissues were twisted at the ends, like they had been used for a blood nose or ear. They also found $600 in cash under Greg's bed. The interesting thing about the money was that it was wet. It had been laid out flat to dry. They had also found Greg's wallet in, the green, in his green car, and it was soaking wet. It was so wet that dye on various business cards inside the wallet had started to run. 
They had also found Greg's jacket in the back of the car, and it was also soaking wet. Not just rained on wet, but submerged wet. Detective Leg started to wonder, why all the links to water? While this was going on, Greg and Belinda went to Melbourne to speak with Greg's lawyer. Belinda wanted to make a family court application to gain sole custody of her daughter. Belinda was worried that Brett would make a claim for custody because of the disappearance of Jaden. She had lost her son and didn't want to lose her daughter as well. Greg's mum had driven the two of them to Melbourne. Surveillance police followed them to Melbourne and observed the couple as they went shopping in Taylor's Lakes. They were acting like a couple of teenagers in love, groping each other, laughing and joking in the shopping centre. Not the type of behaviour you'd expect to see. Many people would question how a mother of a missing child could drive so far away only days after his disappearance. Later that afternoon, Paul Vale contacted police on the couple's behalf and informed them that he was representing them. Leg informed Vale that he wanted Greg and Belinda back to Maui where he wanted to conduct blood tests. Leg wanted to compare blood found on the tissues to Greg and Belinda. Greg and Belinda presented themselves to the Ringwood Police Station at 7pm that night. They provided blood samples to a forensic officer in the presence of two detectives from the Melbourne Homicide Squad. Later that night, Greg called his friend Darren. Greg was in Warrigal on the way back to Maui with Belinda and Brianna in in a rental car that Greg had rented in Melbourne. Greg was starting to panic. He wanted to flee to Brisbane to escape all the turmoil that was going on. Darren calmed Greg down and talked him out of that plan. He explained to Greg that fleeing would not make the problem go away. It would only make him look guilty. Darren met up with them in Trafalgar, midway between Maui and Warrigal. Greg had been wearing the same clothes since Sunday morning and was wanting some clean clothes. Darren agreed to lend him some. When they arrived back in Maui, Darren went to the front of his house and put a bag of clothes together. Darren passed the bag of clothes over the back fence where Greg was waiting. Greg took the bag and left. At about 10pm, Darren heard on his police scanner that there was a fire at Greg's house. A couple of minutes later, Greg rang him. Greg had snuck into his house by smashing a side window to gain access while Belinda sat in the rental car. He told Darren that he wanted to see what the police had been up to in his house. Greg had cut himself whilst trying to get in and asked Darren to go and clean the blood off the windows. During this time, the police had had Greg under constant surveillance and knew everything he was doing. When Leg heard what Greg was up to, he thought this might be a breakthrough. What was Greg up to, he thought. Was Greg checking the house? Was there something there they had missed? Was Greg trying to remove evidence? Darren pulled into Greg's driveway. Minutes later, a police car pulled in behind him. What are you doing here, they asked. Checking the place was Darren's response. Greg was sitting in his car up on Princess Highway watching the action. Surveillance crews were sitting further up the highway watching Greg.
The next day at 3pm, Greg arrived at Maui Police Station. The minute he stepped out of the car, he was mobbed by the media. It was the first time they had seen the babysitter. He was closely followed by his lawyer, Paul Vale. It was Greg's second formal interview with the police. The interview started at 3.38pm on Thursday 19. Paul Vale sat in a separate listening room. In the interview room was Detective Sergeant Michael Roberts, Detective Sergeant Stephen Fife and Senior Constable Paul Edwards and Greg. Roberts asked the question, Fife took notes and Edwards manned the video camera. I did try and find the video of the interview but uh, I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet and I couldn't even find an audio recording of it so unfortunately I don't think there is one available. The interview went on for seven hours where Greg was asked about the day Jaden went missing. I read the entire interview with Greg and the detectives and found it very interesting. I would love to read the interview here but because of the duration I would have to make this a 10-part episode, which I think people are getting sick of just a three-parter. The interview was completed by 10.37pm. Greg was allowed to leave, but detectives told him it was likely they would need him again. Greg was followed back to his house by police, where they wanted to examine the clothes Greg was wearing the night of Jayton's disappearance. Greg had showered and changed his clothes before he and Belinda first went to the police station on Sunday morning to report Jaden missing. Reading between the lines, it was quite obvious, to me at least, that Greg was the main suspect for Jaden's disappearance. I can remember when this case happened. It was huge all around Australia. And I think that a lot of people came to the conclusion very, very early on that Greg was guilty of something. Something smelt fishy. Anyway, I digress. Belinda had been summoned to the police station by Roland Legg, who felt it was time he told her a few home truths. She arrived shortly after Greg had left. The police had become annoyed and frustrated with Belinda's erratic behaviour. Initially, Belinda had believed Greg had had something to do with Jaden's disappearance, but now she had changed her mind. She began to look like a collaborator of a suspect rather than the mother of the victim. Leg told her in no uncertain terms how she looked to the rest of the community. Leg was hoping that by telling Belinda the home truths would wake her up. Leg knew this was a gamble, that it could backfire and could have opposite effect he was hoping for. Belinda left the police station 15 minutes later in tears. Katie was in the car with Belinda and they drove off together, angry. They drove to Greg's house on Narakan Drive where they met up with him. Also at Greg's house were several other friends of Greg's and a reporter and TV crew from a current affairs program. The TV crew had arrived with a large amount of alcohol, apparently paid for by their station. Police continued to apply pressure to Greg's friends. In interviews with them, the police would tell his friends to put aside their personal view of Greg and to consider the facts. The police would point out the facts of Greg's involvement with Jaden. Some of Greg's friends started to have grave doubts about Greg's innocence. 
Greg's friends were now scrutinising him, and he found it very uncomfortable. Next, it was Belinda's turn to be interviewed. Um, I believe this was the next day, as the date wasn't given. Regardless, the morning of the interview, Belinda rang Greg. The phone was answered by Greg's friend, Darren. Greg wouldn't come to the phone. She wanted to know what to tell the police in the interview regarding the tissues with Jaden's blood on them. Darren told her that Greg said to simply tell the truth. Belinda arrived at the station early to be interviewed by homicide detectives, which would last off and on for about eight hours. She left the police station at 4.30pm. Whilst she was being interviewed, police divers were searching Lake Narakan and Maroondah Dam. The police were considering partly draining Lake Narakan. When Belinda left the police station, she believed Greg had killed her son. Police had told Belinda to get a hold of Greg's videotape of his interview and watch it. Well, that's what I tried to do too, but I couldn't find it. Interview subjects are always given their own copy of an interview. She went straight to Greg's house and asked him for the tape. He made up various reasons why not to give it to her. When Greg left the room, she searched for the tape but couldn't find it. Belinda was angry. She grabbed a carving knife from the kitchen and went into Greg's bedroom. She held the knife behind her back. Greg looked up at her. Greg didn't see the knife and never knew how close he was to being stabbed. On Monday the 23rd, Leg went ahead with his plan to drain Lake Narakan. They drained 3,000 megalitres, or 666 million gallons, which lowered the shoreline by a metre, three feet, which isn't much. Greg was perplexed. He told his friend Darren Farr that he didn't know why they were draining the lake. They wouldn't find anything. He said that they were wasting their time. Police had stepped up their search and had been concentrated on the dams in the area. They were convinced that was where they would find Jaden. The police wanted to dive at Blue Rock Dam. They knew that that was Greg's fishing spot. It was revealed that due to finances, the Blue Rock Dam was not extensively searched. Ten days after Jaden's disappearance, the search was expanded to raking through garbage at the Elorn Tip rubbish dump. Police and volunteers searched the tip for 13 days. They found nothing. On Tuesday the 26th, Belinda agreed to surrender custody of her daughter, Brianna, to Brett. Brianna would be better off with her father away from all the chaos. Whilst this was happening, Greg's green Ford Falcon was seized by police to undergo forensic tests. On the 1st of July, the Homicide Squad officially announced that the case had gone from a missing person to a murder investigation. On the same day, vandals made it quite clear who they thought responsible for Jaden's disappearance by spray-painting Greg's prized blue Ford Falcon with the words murderer, sinner and killer. On Friday the 4th, after 20 days and about a million dollars, Police called off the biggest search since the disappearance of Prime Minister Harold Holt 30 years earlier. The detectives packed up and moved to Morwell, not Melbourne. 
They were going to keep the investigation going, but were going to continue more discreetly. Eventually, the police had reached a point where they believed they had enough evidence to charge Greg with murder. Roland Legg spoke with his boss, Rod Collins, and it was decided that the evidence should be put before the Chief Crown Prosecutor and Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions, Paul Coughlin, QC. On Tuesday, 15th July, Roland Legg, Rod Collins and Steve Fyth met Paul Coughlin at the offices of the OPP. After going through the evidence, the surveillance and the evidence from other people's statements and the contradictions in Greg's many different accounts of what happened, it was time to make a decision. Did they have enough evidence for a conviction? Should they wait? Could they get a conviction without a body? Coughlin said, with a degree of certainty, charge him. He was sure there was enough evidence to charge Greg Domasavich with the murder of Jaden Lesky. The surveillance team informed Legg that at 8am, Greg was at his mum's house in Altham, an outer suburb of Melbourne. Greg's car was also bugged, so they knew he was heading to South Yarra, an inner suburb of Melbourne, to visit a second lawyer, Michael Rafter. The lawyer's office was around the corner from the Homicide Squad headquarters, which worked out nicely for the police. Around 2pm, the Homicide Squad crew left for the lawyer's office. They parked on the side of the road and waited for Greg to arrive. Shortly after, Greg drove past in his green Ford Falcon. The Homicide Squad pulled out behind Greg and followed him down the road for a few metres. Greg didn't notice them. At 2.13pm on July 16, the Homicide Squad's Roland Leg hit the siren on his car and pulled Greg over. Leg approached Greg's driver's window and said, Hello Greg. Greg replied, Hello Roland. Mick Roberts of the Homicide Squad approached the car and said, Greg, I'm arresting you for the murder of Jaden Lesky. Roberts read Greg his rights. Greg was stunned. Greg was taken from his car and placed in handcuffs. Greg was placed into the back of an unmarked police car and driven to the St Kilda Road police complex. When there, Greg rang his lawyer, Michael Rafter, who instructed Greg to say nothing until he got there. Mick Roberts briefly interviewed Greg, but on his lawyer's instruction, Greg refused to answer any questions. At 7.32pm, Greg appeared in an out-of-sessions court hearing at the Melbourne Custody Centre before Bail Justice Alan Scott. Greg was remanded in custody to appear in Melbourne's Magistrate Court the next morning. Greg spent the night in the Custody Centre. The next day, Greg appeared in the Melbourne Magistrate's Court and was remanded to the Melbourne Assessment Prison. Belinda found out about Greg's arrest two days later. She was staying with friends in New South Wales at a small coastal town. Belinda became convinced of Greg's guilt and refused to see him. This would become a flip-flopping feeling for Belinda. One minute she would be convinced of Greg's guilt and then do a 180 and believe him to be innocent. 
this behaviour would go on for some time. New Year's Day, 1998. 14-year-old Sam Payne and his family are celebrating the new year with a picnic lunch at the Blue Rock Dam. After lunch was over, Sam was getting bored and wanted to explore the area. He headed off along the dam wall. He was slowly walking along, looking for nothing in particular, when he noticed something floating in the water. He couldn't make out what it was and thought it looked like a big pillow. It was only a metre or three feet from the dam wall, so he moved down to take a closer look. When Sam got a closer look, he thought it looked like a baby's body, greyish-blue in colour. It appeared to have a gash in the side, and one of its legs was sticking out of the water. Sam hurried back to his grandmother, who was also walking along the dam wall, to tell her what he had found. Patricia Yockland went to see for herself thinking her grandson was playing a joke. As she got closer, she saw something in the water. At first, she thought it was a doll, but it was too big to be a doll. Mrs. Yockland told Sam to run back to his grandfather with the message to call the police. She stayed with the body. Roland Legg was on holidays when he received a page from Detective Inspector Sergeant Jeff Marr at 3.45pm, New Year's Day informing him that a child's body had been found at Blue Rock Dam. He didn't need directions as he had been there many times. Leg made it clear that the body wasn't to be touched until the water police or search and rescue units arrived. The body was close to the bank but badly decomposed and Leg didn't want anyone tugging at it from the steep bank. At 6.05pm, Gippsland officer Brian Hall lifted the body out of the water and placed it in the boat and took it to shore. Leg arrived at the dam at 7.40pm and checked the body. He recognised it instantly. The extreme cold of the water had preserved the body. The body was packed in dry ice to preserve it as it was now summer and the hot temperature would deteriorate it rapidly. At 10.40pm, the body was then flown by helicopter to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. From there, it was taken by government undertaker to the mortuary at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for an autopsy the next day. Belinda had been out all day at Lake's entrance with friends, Dave and Sue Harvis. They had just arrived at Belinda's house when the phone rang. Dave took the call in the bedroom. He came out of the bedroom with a stunned look on his face. A little boy's been found out at Blue Rock, he said. Belinda thought it was a practical joke. Ring the police, Dave said. Maui police confirmed that a body had been found but had yet to be identified. Ignore it until you hear from us. If we need to contact you, we will, the officer told Belinda. She broke down crying. They ignored the police advice and headed out to Blue Rock Dam. On arrival to the dam, Belinda was stopped from going down the bank where the body was found. Police divers returned to the dam the next day to search for any other items related to the case. Visibility in the water was extremely poor. 
and the motion of the water was stirring up silt. Progress was slow. A white plastic bag with the baby's bottle in it was found. Also, they could see a pink feed bag or an industrial bag of some sort. The diver felt around in the mud and silt and came across a length of blue rope. He realised that the pink bag was weighed down with something, some sort of metal bar. The industrial bag turned out to be a small sleeping bag tied to a crowbar. The sleeping bag was still zipped shut, but the stitching had torn away. The sleeping bag had the distinctive smell of rotting flesh, as did the white plastic bag. The body and the white plastic bag had been placed in the sleeping bag, tied to the crowbar, and then thrown in the dam. When I was reading this part of the book, one of Greg's friends had been looking for a crowbar that he had lent to Greg, and Greg had told him that it was in the police car um, that had been uh, searched by police, and he told him that uh, the forensics had confiscated the crowbar. Now, when Greg's friend's mother saw this on TV, when um, they, they noticed that the crowbar was tied to the sleeping bag, she called out to her friend and said, I think I've found your crowbar. Now, that's, um, that's telling, isn't it? Anyway, after learning about the discovery of Jaden's body, Greg collapsed and had to be taken to the prison medical centre. The next morning, Greg threw a tantrum in his cell and refused to see his legal counsel. Threw a bit of a wobbly, as we say in Australia. On Monday, the 12th of October, 1998, amid tense public interest, the trial of the Crown versus Gregory Nicholas Domasavich got underway. It was a media circus. Every major media outlet had a reporter covering the trial. To most of us at the time, it seemed like a clear-cut case that Greg Domasavich was guilty. And I can honestly say, after reading the book, The Jaden Lesky Murder, for the research about this podcast, my opinion has not changed. But I digress. Colin Lovett QC is a very talented criminal lawyer. He was defending Greg free of charge due to legal aid funding problems. As the trial got on, Dr Shelley Robertson took the stand. Dr Robertson is the senior forensic pathologist that performed the autopsy of Jaden. Dr Robertson would go on to tell the court of the injuries that Jaden had suffered. There was a lot of detail given about the decompensation of Jaden's body, which I won't mention here, but Dr. Robinson did go into detail about the injuries that led to Jaden's death. Jaden's body was 84 centimetres or 33 inches long and weighed 18 kilograms or not 39 pounds. He had fair hair and eye colour was indeterminate. He had on dark green tracksuit pants and a dark green track top. His left arm was bandaged from the elbow to wrist. Jaden had a fracture at the base of his skull where the head joins to the neck. The fracture lines went off into a Y configuration. There was a 2 centimeter diameter area of hemorrhage on the inner surface of the dura, which is the membrane covering the brain. The severity of the injury would normally be associated with a fatal car accident. The arm had been fractured in two places. Both bones in the forearm had been broken. One bone had been displaced 
and there were loose fragments of the other. The drug, benzohol, was discovered in Jaden's liver. Benzohol is a therapeutic drug mainly used in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. This drug is also used for recreational purposes, better known by the brand name Artane, for its euphoric effects. Dr Robertson concluded that the most likely cause of Jaden Lesky's death was head injury. The trial was long and complex. At 3.12pm on Tuesday 1st of December, 50 days from the beginning of the trial, the jury retired to consider its verdict. At 5.06pm on Friday 4th of December, the jury was ready to deliver their verdict. Eight men and three women made their way into court and stood in front of the jury box. Not one of them looked up at Greg. The judge's associate asked the jury foreman if they had reached a verdict. They had. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty of murder? She asked. The foreman replied in a strong voice, Not guilty. There were gasps heard in the court. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty of manslaughter? Not guilty. Justice Vincent discharged the jury and then addressed Greg. Mr Domasavich, he says, you may leave the dock. After serving 17 months in jail on remand, Greg left the court a free man. I believe then, as I do today, that Greg got off the charge of murder because of the pig's head incident. If not for Kenny and Darren vandalising Greg's house and leaving the pig's head, I believe this put enough doubt in the jury's mind not to convict Greg of murder or manslaughter. If this incident hadn't occurred, I personally believe that this case would have been a slam dunk and Greg would have been convicted. Talk about bad timing. In 2006, there was an inquest into the death of Jaden Lesky and State Coroner Graham Johnson found Greg Domasavage had a role in disposing of 13-month-old Jaden's body in a dam near Maui, but stopped short of naming him as the child's killer. Greg now lives in Melbourne and has a child of his own. He has legally changed his name and his new name has been suppressed by the courts. Police have no other suspects or leads in the murder of Jaden. Well, that's it for the Who Killed Jaden Lesky podcast. I'm sure everyone that's listening has made up their own mind of Greg Domasavich's guilt or innocence. And as I said before, my personal opinion is he got away with murder. But anyway, nothing can be done about that now because of what's it called? Uh, double jeopardy. So he can't be charged with it again. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Next podcast will come a bit quicker as I've had some help and it has been researched and written for me. So I'll let this one be out in the ether for a little while and then I will release the new one. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it. It's been very well researched and written. We hope to see you next time or we hope that you're listening next time. So 
Goodbye for now. Did you think of yourself as an assassin? Assassin? Sounds so exotic. (laughs) I was just a murderer.